It's time again for another episode of WRBH's Figure of Speech, where every week you can meet local poets and writers from the New Orleans community and listen to them share their work. This episode, we're welcoming on author Robert Fiesler. Take a listen. Greetings. My name is Robert W. Fiesler, and I am the author of the book Tinderbox, the untold story of the upstairs lounge fire and the rise of gay liberation, which I need to tell my publisher is a mouthful to say. Tinderbox is a nonfiction account of a notoriously unsolved arson fire. The crime took place at a gay bar called the Upstairs Lounge in 1973 New Orleans and claimed 32 lives. The book published last summer and was embraced by the New Orleans community gay and straight, I'm happy to say. It was also, dare I mention, my first book, my first foray, not as a critic or a reader, but as a fellow author. So my name's Robert Fiesler, and I'll be the host and, I guess, voice of this week's figure of speech. This episode will feature a series of poetry and prose readings built around one common theme, shut out. But first, before we get into the readings, let me walk you into this idea. What does it mean to be shut out? from your world, your society, your dreams, not just unheard by the peers you petition for acceptance, but heard and then dismissed, or not even dismissed, but heard and then willfully ignored by those beautiful people dining at the cafe tables around the world, spurned and brutally so, laughed at as if you don't exist, as if you never even spoke shut out and denied, not just the object of your desires, but denied selfhood in an act of rejection that digs into your very soul. What happens when they draw a circle and leave you out of it? What happens when the golden doors are closed? What does it feel like to be the runt of the litter forever yearning for happiness from the edge of the campfire? That's the kind of shut out that I'm talking about. And for today, I've selected a series of passages written by or about dreamers, pariahs, and outsiders, many of them queer, who pounded upon those golden doors. A poem by Srikanth Reddy, um, an excerpt of history written by me, yours truly, and a piece of prose written by the great dreamer Marcel Proust. These readings will feature people who attempt to trespass into the inner circle of existence, of relevance and citizenship, and are repelled. People who beg the world to see and acknowledge their common humanity, and who respond to those elites that shut them out with one cry, a cry heard and dismissed the world round, let me in. And let me guarantee you something. We of the oppressed, we will be let in. First reading is a section of a poem written by Srikanth Reddy called Fundamentals of Esperanto. It's actually a poem that made me weep the first time I read it. Very broadly, it's a poem about what happened to a genuine real movement for world peace in the 1960s through the foundation of what people wanted to be a universal language called Esperanto. Esperanto was a language 
that anyone could learn easily, and yet no one did, because we are creatures of tribes and nations, and because we are human beings. More specifically and concretely, this poem is about one man who attempts to build a birdhouse. As I read, I want you to ponder one thing. How is trying and failing to achieve something so big as universal human understanding a bit like building a beautiful birdhouse that no birds come to live in? I give you Fundamentals of Esperanto by Srikanth Reddy. There's a man from Quebec in my head, a friend to the Purple Martins. Purple Martins are the Cadillac of swallows. All Purple Martins are dying or dead. Brain scans of grown Purple Martins suggest these creatures feel the same levels of doubt and bliss as an eight-year-old girl in captivity. While driving home from the brewery one night, this man from Quebec heard a public radio program about Purple Martins, and the next day he set out to build them a house in his own backyard. I've never built anything, let alone a house, not to mention a home for somebody else. I've never unrolled a blueprint onto a workbench, sunk a post, or sent the neighbor's kid pedaling off to the store for a bag full of nails. I've never waited ten years for a swallow, never put in aluminum floors to smooth over the waiting, never piped sugar water through colored tubes to each empty nest lined with newspaper shredded with strong, tired hands, never dismantled the entire affair and put it back together again. Still no swallows. I never installed the big light that stays on through the night to keep owls away, never installed lesser lights, never rested on Sunday with a beer on the deck surveying what I had done and what yet remained to be done listening to sticks while the neighbor kids ran through my sprinklers. I have never collapsed and abandoned, never prayed, but enough about Purple Martins. Whew, that got me. That was Fundamentals of Esperanto by Srikanth Reddy. Next up is a piece of history that I wrote about the upstairs lounge fire. I'll try to let these words speak for themselves because they aren't necessarily an artistic work by me, but instead a reconstruction of something that real people experienced, I want to emphasize, in June of 1973. I'll set the scene. We're in the aftermath of the upstairs lounge fire on the ragtag edge of the French Quarter. A typical Sunday night hopping and happy becomes a flashpoint of devastation. Fire has exploded through the windows of a secret second-story gay bar on the corner of Iberville and Charter Street. Dozens are dead. The blaze seems intentionally set. Gay survivors emerge from that burning building onto the street below and must grapple with what has just happened. Yet no one is willing to hear them. No one cares. They have been shut out of citizenship. This is an excerpt from Tinderbox by yours truly. 
barreling down a stairwell that plunged from the rooftop and the secret back exit of a burning gay bar, Ronnie Rosenthal emerged into a New Orleans street teeming with fire trucks. Ronnie guided Ricky Everett, a fellow fire survivor, from spot to spot. Cloaked in soot and human cremains, Ricky was unable to see for the tears clouding his eyes. Quote, They all had that space for people lying there on the street, recalled Ricky, and they were pulling the burning clothes off of them. By some strange fate, neither Ricky nor Ronnie turned the corner onto Charter Street to witness Ricky's best friend, Pastor Bill Larson, in his final repose, seared to the windowsill of the upstairs lounge one floor above them. Closeted gay church deacon Joseph Courtney Craighead, however, did so and became dumbstruck. The legendary essayist Michel de Montaigne once described this traumatic condition as the body's inability to express the, quote, torpor that paralyzes us when events surpassing our capability overwhelm us. Indeed, Courtney struggled to inhale and exhale alongside Rusty Quitten and the other fire survivors who, by some miracle or some curse, were forced to look up at carnage also intended for them. Their guilt was sudden and uncontrollable. Courtney moved like a stranger in his own limbs, dropping all of his social defenses, which had protected him from the dangers of wayward openness at a time when openness about one's sexual secret could cost a man his job, his home, his family, and his freedom, not to mention his church. Deacon Courtney Craighead inadvertently used his real name when answering questions from bystanders and police. Just then, a throng of reporters and news crews seemed to materialize, among them John Laplace of the Times-Picayune and Bill Elder of the CBS affiliate WWL-TV. They showed press credentials, and police lifted the tape to allow them immediate access to the scene. In this era, little adversity between police and the press seemed to exist. It was Frank Hayward, the police information officer serving as the department's liaison to the mayor, who managed the list of journalists approved to receive official city press passes for crime scenes. If a press pass was denied or revoked, a journalist ran the risk of getting scooped, and thus could members of the press be favored or squeezed by the gatekeepers of City Hall. En masse, reporters rushed survivors like Courtney, who'd only had seconds to escape a room of friends being eaten alive by fire. The cacophony of voices made it difficult for Courtney to hear orders from police and firefighters as the ranking officer on the scene, Major Henry M. Morris of the New Orleans Police Department, made a statement to the state's item, a New Orleans newspaper, about the upstairs lounge. Quote, Some thieves hung out there, and you know this was a queer bar, Morris said. A second officer, perhaps attempting to qualify Morris's comment, explained how it was, quote, 
not uncommon for homosexuals to carry false identification. Ronnie LaBeouf, a photojournalist, captured images of the dead and despairing. Quote, fire came up the stairs fast, Courtney muttered to the state's item, which quoted him by name, linking him indelibly to the incinerated gay bar called the Upstairs Lounge. Quote, two guys told me to jump and I was small enough, survivor Adolf Medina said to the Associated Press. Quote, what was done was done intentionally. An anonymous man interviewed with his back to the camera told Elder, the WWL reporter. Seeing the macabre, ashen gray face of Bill Larson in the upstairs lounge window, photographer Pat Bork of the Daily Record displaying a gallows humor common to newsmen took a picture and jested, quote, at least it was only a mannequin factory. Those aren't mannequins, someone else told him. A nearby tourist provided testimony to the Daily Record, quote, we watched those people burn before our very eyes, and we couldn't do a thing to help them. Don't use my name. I just won't think about it. It never happened. It never could have happened. Down the street, an Associated Press reporter watched a bartender set up a drink station on the sidewalk and do, quote, a brisk business with spectators. That was Tinderbox about the upstairs lounge fire. Last up on this episode is a bit of lyrical prose from the novel Swan's Way, written by the great Marcel Proust. Here's the scene. I'll set it. An old man looking back upon his childhood recalls an elder friend named Swan, a mentor he admired, a man who used to visit his family. Through the act of remembering, this old man looks back at Swan and suddenly sees a man in unexpressed pain. And he understands why, because it is a pain that can be universally known. Swan's pain was and is the pain of being shut out of a party, a house, or a room in which our love and our life's reason for being when your life's reason for being as another person dwells and exists, that beautiful creature laughing, flirting, perhaps falling in love with another soul and unconcerned with our pain because we are shut out beyond the doors of that person's love and regard. I give you Swan's Way by Marcel Proust. Swan, too, had known well that false joy which a friend or relative of the woman we love can give us when, on his arrival at the house or theater where she is to be found for some ball or party or first night at which he is to meet her, he sees us wandering outside, desperately awaiting some opportunity of communicating with her. He recognizes us, greets us familiarly, and asks, what are we doing there? And when we invent a story of having some urgent message to give to his friend or relative, he assures us that nothing could be simpler 
takes us in at the door and promises to send her down to us in five minutes. How we love him, as at that moment I loved a person named Francois. The good-natured intermediary, who by a single word has made supportable, human, almost propitious, the inconceivable, infernal scene of gaiety in the thick of which we had been imagining swarms of enemies, perverse and seductive, beguiling away from us, even making laugh at us, the woman we love. If we are to judge of them by him, this relative who has accosted us and who is himself an initiate in those cruel mysteries, then the other guests cannot be so very demoniacal. Those inaccessible and excruciating hours during which she was about to taste of unknown pleasures, suddenly, through an unexpected breach, we have broken into them. Suddenly, we can picture to ourselves, we possess, we intervene upon, we have almost created one of the moments, the succession of which would have compounded those hours, a moment as real as all the rest, if not actually more important to us because our mistress is more intensely a part of it, namely the moment in which he goes to tell her that we are waiting below. And doubtless, the other moments of the party would not have been so very different from this one, would be no more exquisite, no more calculated to make us suffer, since this kind friend has assured us that, of course, she would be delighted to come down. It would be far more amusing for her to talk to you than to be bored up there. Alas, Swan had learned by experience that the good intentions of a third party are powerless to influence a woman who is annoyed to find herself pursued even into a ballroom by a man she does not love. Too often, the kind friend comes down again alone. That was Swan's Way by Marcel Proust. And this was Figure of Speech, exploring themes of being shut out. I'm Robert Fiesler, the author of the book Tinderbox. And I'll be at the Saints and Sinners Literary Festival at the end of March in New Orleans, if you want to see me. Listeners, especially listeners who've been shut out in their own lives, I hope you pry those golden doors open. Let's pray you fight your way into the inner circle, but let me guarantee we will be let in. We will be let in. Someday, at least. Until then, I bid you peace in the struggle and struggle in the peace. Thank you. That was author Robert Fiesler, and that's our show. You've been listening to Figure of Speech, a community poetry and writing program from WRBH. Tune in on Saturdays at 1 p.m. and every Monday at 9 p.m. for more great New Orleans writing. Thanks for listening.